Welcome back to Eyes Wide Open. I'm Loz, your host. And today we're honored to have David Fleming, founder of Not Our Future, COVID-19 Assembly and Together Declaration. He's joining us to talk about his new project, which draws from the amazing success of his info war in Oxford to push back against 15-minute cities. David unveils a strategic blueprint to unite the freedom movement's diverse voices into an unstoppable force of people-powered politics. Inspired by history's lessons, he emphasizes the transformative power of unity and a shared goal, mobilizing non-voters. Fleming's message is clear, encouraging these non-voters to cast their ballots can be the game changer we've been seeking. But that's not all. Mark your calendars for Sunday 27th of August at 7pm. Because if you want to continue this conversation, David will be live for an exclusive Q&A and I'll be right there alongside him. This interactive event is a great opportunity to dive deeper into his insights, address your burning questions or inquire how to get involved. The Q&A is exclusively for paying members of my website, so don't miss out on a chance to be a part of this thought-provoking conversation that could shape the future of the freedom movement. Links in the description below, but now it's time for our guest. David Fleming, welcome to Eyes Wide Open. Thanks for coming up. Thanks, Lawrence. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Yeah, you made it up here. How I found you was... Um, my good friend, Havoye Morich, the host of Geopolitics and Empire. He's also on TNT Radio. I asked him if he could recommend any guests, uh, specifically for 15-minute cities. And he said, first name he came to was David Fleming. I know you're working with Not Our Future at the moment, but tell us a little bit about the other projects that you've been involved in that have you know, brought you to the tip of the public discourse in relation to the freedom movement that we're involved in. Yeah, uh, well, when it all kicked off, I was started off a, a couple of weeks or maybe a month in. Toby Young set up lockdown skeptics, and I thought, you know, I'll do something similar but not the same. So I set up a thing called Lockdown Truth. So I wanted to make graphics that would, you know, go viral, that kind of thing. So that was one, and then that uh, then that had limited scope. So then I set up. COVID-19 assembly, um, which we did a number of projects on. And that sort of led me to the group that became together. So the Together Declaration. And I did that for a while. But I had my eyes on bigger things. I sort of looked at all these things as stepping stones to the actual battlefield with the cabal. That's why I took not a few, I set up not a future, which was I, I see a step above together. Yeah. And so that's what I'm on at the moment. But so my eyes always on the the next thing. Yeah. 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 So although it was simple, my stuff was stood out and people thought it looked professional. So I must be controlled opposition, you know? Right, okay. You know, yeah. oh, that's too slick. You're not, any, you're not anyone in this game until you've been called no. controlled opposition. Yeah. It's almost like a rite of passage and a badge of honor in itself. Because mm. I mean, you, you look at a lot of websites that came out on our side or, or leaflets mm. or, or things, and they're just like terrible design. Yeah. So if you're if you look professional compared to that, then you're controlled opposition. But then the thing is, it's a bit silly, isn't it? Because if the government or whoever wanted to infiltrate you, they sh 
they would do the crap ones. Crap one, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. You know? So they're the real controlled opposition, the crap ones, though. Mm. Uh, it's, it's easy to call everyone a shill. You know, it's really easy to do because you're not taking a chance. It's like a, 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 um, a cynical, negative position to take. It's far harder to take a chance on somebody. It's far harder to, you know, and, and riskier to stake, you know, your support for some people who, who are out there on the front line. It's, it's easy to just go, oh, everyone's a shill. I guess, you know, you've come across a few of those yourself being so deeply embedded in these movements that you've been involved with over the last three years. As soon as you do anything to stick your head above the parapet, I mean, there's various levels, you'll always get haters, Yeah, you know, so that's just normal. So you'll always get haters, whether they're government controlled or not, you know, is irrelevant. Or I'd never heard it before, but then it, it came up with like this grifting, you know, yeah. that one. Um, because with COVID-19 assembly, we did projects and the, our first big project was um, the COVID deaths audit, which mm. it was a big plan, a big, a big, you know, I still want to finish it and do it properly. Um, literally, the idea was on paper to open up because there were 120,000 deaths of COVID, you know, with or of at that stage. And let's face it, all, all, all the COVID thing was all about people being afraid to die. So every single death was important because it was creating our our prison basically so um with claire craig we were going to say we were going to do our best to look into every death and find out what really happened in every one of those cases that were presented to us as a reason for destroying humanity mm. practically was those deaths so okay we're gonna we're gonna look at them all you know but basically the amount of emails we got all about claire craig they, yeah. they're just calling her a grifter grifter um but the thing is, they were so coordinated and they all followed a format and they were all, they were mostly all funny, you know, yeah. there's was, was quite witty, you know, stuff. Um, it was like a campaign, sort of um, literally a military campaign. And we know it's the 77th 77 Brigade. Brigade yeah. It was fancy them being very funny though. <laughs> no, they were yeah. almost all 100% funny. You know, yeah. they were literally, it was quite enjoyable to read almost yeah. if you could just dissociate yourself. But, but, but that's. That was that that sort of people calling you out and saying you're a grifter and you're you, this and the other. And then later on, there's the people actually calling you controlled opposition, which is sort of the almost the reverse. <laughs> we were starting to build up a picture. Claire Craig put together a team of um, uh, pathologists, and we had a statistician statistician on board who um, ultimately um, it didn't work out. Where, but was but was uh, the objective of the project to determine the actual? number of people that died during that period, not so much of COVID, but actual deaths to see if there was a spike in deaths during that period. Is that what the objective was? Well, any, anybody presented as a COVID death, we wanted to say if they were or not. And obviously we were suspecting that they weren't. Um, so we just wanted to, to put that in a format and present it to the public. Because you know? I always thought that was probably, because there was so much propaganda, there was so much lying with statistics because people, you know, are susceptible to graphs with numbers and they roll them out on a daily basis. It was so difficult to try and get to the bottom of it. So I just thought, I just took the position, well, I just don't believe anything the government is saying. That's, that was my position. Mm -hmm. But I always thought one way to be able to truly determine whether this was, uh, you know, once in a generation pandemic was excess deaths. Because if there was no excess deaths, how could they determine, you know, it was a pandemic? So I always thought that would 
be a good metric to actually be able to determine whether it was yeah, you know, well, true De- or not. Denis Brancourt has um, sort of done a lot of work on that and shown that, you know. Medazalam and, uh, and yeah, Matt Hancock and all that Procedural stuff. policies, we could say. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and, that, and obviously there are all the people who are ill right there and then who added to that spike. It was just condensed because they were all very ill and they probably would have died over the next six months anyway. They needed the numbers, didn't they, to push yeah. the pandemic? Yeah. So that's why there's but no real excess deaths. But there was the spike because they, they made it happen in a shorter space of time. It beggars belief, you know. Just, yeah, was it yeah. something that you'd like to get back to then, that project? And get, oh, well, re- definitely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, my longer term project over the next coming up, that would be one part of it, a genuine inquiry. Mm. Like... Obviously, the inquiry that's happening at the moment is just a joke. Mm. You know, it's, it, I haven't really followed it much because I know it's going to be. I know, but yeah, sometimes flawed. I can't. I can't help hearing bits and pieces, especially when you can see they were setting it up as a. Oh no, we have to go harder and faster next time. Mm. You know, for the next pandemic, it's definitely going to happen. Well, when, when I heard they were having the inquiry and. Um, one of the requirements from the people running the inquiry oh, yeah. is that you can wear a mask and you can have a, a, a you know a COVID test before mm. you come in. <laughs> there you go. No. That's, that's telling us you know the right people are being placed in the right position to mm. to run that inquiry. I think that kind of you know kind of touches a little bit upon what we're going to talk about later. Is that the problem we've got is our institutions, things like you know, running public inquiries are so compromised, so infiltrated, so corrupt that we don't really put much faith in them being able to come up with any truth or justice. Is that something that you feel is a problem that we're facing right now as a a nation? Well, yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, everything's controlled, you know, and that's just another another part of it you know i i don't i wouldn't in them i didn't for one second think there'd be a real inquiry i was talking to toby young about it three years ago he wanted to do an inquiry so did i um but he was trying to keep it sort of officially want to get the backing of like a university or somebody mainstream yeah because i i thought no let's just make it from the people you know yeah the inquiry I want to have in the future won't just be COVID. It'll be an everything inquiry. So it'll just be part of it. It won't be the COVID inquiry. It'll be mm-hmm. the inquiry, you know, like the Inquisition. You cover everything. And mm-hmm. COVID is just a tiny part of the whole thing. Well, it is a tiny part of the whole thing. It's like a precursor to what they've got planned and what's coming. And that's how I found you was by asking Havoye about, have you got anyone that knows about 15-minute cities? And I've just done a live stream about 15-minute cities, a two-hour live stream, and you know, it required me to do you know quite a bit of research into the whole idea. It's, it's quite a dystopian prospect, 15-minute cities, but it's part of a bigger agenda, which is the 2030 agenda. And you have all of these spokes that are coming from it. And COVID was like one of the key setups for that, to put the infrastructure in place, to get people used to this idea of QR codes and all of the other factors. And I found a clip by Rebel News, which was the protest in Oxford. Once Oxford came out first and said, you know, we're going to be the trial. And there was a media pushback and there was this really well-run protest in Oxford. And I only found out when you, uh, when we we spoke earlier that you run that. Tell us a bit about, about your experience being kind of thrust into the 15-minute city struggle and Oxford. Well, we launched Not Our Future in at the end of November last year. And and the whole idea of not our future was 
sort of a number of steps. The first one was to create information like good leaflets and things, and then just get volunteers to deliver these leaflets on various topics, ideally to every house in the country, you know, regularly. I mean, in, in an ideal world, it'd be every house would get a leaflet every week on a different topic, mm. you know, in and around all this freedom stuff, you know, COVID lockdowns or, you know, 50 minute cities or CBDCs, whatever, any any of those things. Um, but just after we launched, Oxfordshire Council announced they were going to bring in this zoning, traffic zoning into Oxford City which would effectively make it 15-minute cities, whatever they wanted to say. In fact, they were. They they were calling them 15-minute cities when they first announced it. Mm-hmm. And they were saying it was for um, the environment. Whereas later on, you know, when the shit hit the fan, they were yeah. they were backtracking and calling it traffic calming yeah. and traffic measures. But when they announced it, they were all pleased as punch. Well, I, I did a bit of research and, and put in, I put 15-minute cities and then um, all of the cities in UK. Right, so I did Salford, 15-minute cities, Edinburgh, 15-minute cities, Leeds, 15-minute cities, and almost every city without fail had says, yeah, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And some of them, some of it was old announcements. So yeah. like you said, before the shit hit the fan, before people started actually researching this, is that they were quite happy to talk about it as a 15-minute city. Yeah, could because so before November, December, um, yeah, other people had mentioned them in the past. But yeah, so Oxfordshire announced it and... There was a quick flurry of activity, like some people got nasty and some people like gave death threats to councillors and things. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was obviously wasn't wasn't clever. But but there was a, a flurry of activity on Twitter and and I thought it'd be a great way to show what not our future's all about. Yeah. If we leafleted the whole of Oxford City in one day with the truth about what fifty minute cities are. So I I said, Okay, let's do it. I well, you know, worked out quickly what we would take and I thought, Oh god, we'll need about 400 people, three, 300 people to turn up to do it. And I thought that's that's a lot of people. It's not much people for a protest, but it's a, it's, it's a lot of people to do a job, yeah. you know. Um, but I decided to go for it because that's what I do. I always just go <laughs> okay. for things. Yeah, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm stupid, you know. Um, so I decided to go for it. So I announced, I, I made, you know, I sat down, I made a graphic, stuck it out there. Yeah, obviously I got a lot of people saying that. Great, great, great. Got all the usual suspects to share it and it started taking off. You were telling me before about you were weighing leaflets. I'd never done this before. I didn't have time to start meeting people to teach me how to do it. So I invented myself. So I just made maps of every single ward from in Oxford City. Did you make your own 15 minutes out for the leaflet drop? (laughs) And then broke that down roughly myself. And then I had, I literally, the day before, a van pulled up outside my house and the guy dropped a pallet outside my front door. of It was half a tonne of leaflets. <laughs> so it was literally a half tonne of uh, leaflets. I put them all inside my house. So I, I, I weighed how many 200 were. Mm. It was like a kilo or something like that, two kilos. So on the day, we had trestle tables and weighing scales and everybody got like a kilo of, uh, of leaflets. Of truth, was, kilo yeah. of truth. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so that was about 250 leaflets or something. I think a kilo and a half was... was Everybody got a plastic bag with their leaflets and 400 people turned up. And, um, it, you know, it was, it was it basically it was a really su- successful day. Well, it was a big success because, you know, it was a massive, uh, raised a massive amount of awareness of the well, situation. Well, well, there's, well, there's a number of things. First of all, that m- amount of people turned up from all over the country. Hmm. And it was a great, it was a stamp, it was like a sign saying, yeah. it's not just Oxford, the whole country's coming to help Oxford. 
Yeah. It was it was like um, you know a movement. Literally, uh, the, the Rebel News interviewed a few people from the day. The Freds was one, and mm. but there was some other people they spoke to that were really good, really articulate, understood the problem, had no problem you know describing it. And I thought yeah. there's quite a lot of uh, talented well, people there. Yeah, well, these were all people who'd taken a decision to drive to yeah. Oxford from all over the country, you know, they they were doing it for a reason. They weren't mindless idiots, you know, yeah. so they, they knew what they were doing. What was what was the, the um, reaction like on the, on the street? Generally, I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of public interaction because we were just putting them indoor. It was very new at the time, wasn't it? This whole idea of 15-minute cities, it was like a bit of the break, that was like a breakthrough in the public discourse, I think. Well, yeah, 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 especially because we just put truth bombs in every house in Oxford, <laughs> so nobody can say they don't know, it, they yeah. don't know about it. <clears throat> but, I mean, generally... The, the brief was doors, you know, stick it in the letterbox, and that's it. We're not, we're not talking to people. We're not trying to convert people yeah. here today. It's not a protest. We're not trying to convert people. We don't want to have arguments with anybody. You know, generally the feedback was good. Mm. I mean, all I nobody said they were accosted by anybody. What has been the effect in Oxford? So from that first step, which was raising awareness through education, truth bombs through the door, like you said. Has Oxford backpedaled at all? Is it, you know, softening its tone? Have there been any further protests or leaflet drops? The next month there was an actual protest. Yeah. How did that go? Do you know? Did you attend? I did go for, well, I just sat and had a coffee with the Freds for the whole time. There was a by-election for the council in March, I think, so two months before the actual local elections. But there were no local elections this year in Oxford anyway. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't an issue. But in the by-election for the local, for the lo- you know, the local council, the independent candidate nearly won, but, but Labour won instead. But Labour sent 80 canvassers out to one ward, people on the, on the street. Hammer, yeah. The two, the independent candidate who was against the, the zones and the Labour were like both on about 800 seats, their mm-hmm. uh, votes, and everybody else was nowhere, you know, like 10, 150, you know. That. So they nearly did it, but that was with Labour having 80 candidates. Now, if I'd known, I could maybe have asked all my volunteers from before to maybe come out one more time to do this election. And I could have swung it. But either way, between the two events, uh, the protests and then the election, I think that got the message over to other places. And Canterbury announced in, in the aftermath of Oxford, before the shit hit the fan for them, Canterbury says, oh, we're doing that too, yeah. But the the thing is, Oxford were bringing it in straight away, whereas Canterbury's plan was literally a 20-year plan. Mm. So it was miles. They haven't even built the ring roads yet. Mm. Yeah, there no, aren't even any plans that are going to be part of the plan. But the leader of the council um, was a Tory, and he was, he was all for it. So obviously he wanted to try and get some of the attention now, you know, have some of that virtue signal and stuff going on. And I just wanted to get them out. So I set up this thing in May, for May, called Hold Our Vote, which is about... Hold Our Vote. Yeah, which is about getting together. And this was to challenge the Canterbury Council? Well, it, yeah, I was going to do Canterbury and Bath, but the idea was there that we would sort of all agree to not vote for anybody until a candidate came up that we said, yeah, let's vote for them. My plan was, like, get rid of the councillors in Canterbury, mm. particularly the leader who was behind this plan. But... We didn't need to because... Um, You've reversed the decision, haven't you? Well, no, he didn't get voted in. He lost his seat in oh, May, right. okay. so he's gone. So yeah. that's good. And they've reversed the decision but as well. That, see, well and then, lots of other places are too. Well, it could have been a catalyst, couldn't it? Because well, that's the thing, that, yeah. That, when, I was doing, uh, when I was doing the research for um, 
will live stream on in 15 minute cities. It was clear that amongst the people globally who are resisting, and there's some, you know, there's some powerful figures out there, even Jordan Peterson speaking out against it. And you have uh, Christine Anderson, which is the German MEP, and she's fantastic. She's really, really good. Mm. Uh, Epoch Times. And there's, there's lots of kind of uh, influential people that are in positions of, um, you know, um, well-known, right? And they are talking about this issue quite quite openly and prominently. And, and that was one of the things that came up as Oxford was such a big uh, event because it was almost like 15 minute cities came onto the world stage through this announcement that Oxford Council had made. And then you had, you know, the other ones that began to follow. So I think your leaflet drop also became part of the global news because it was mm. the first time that people said, actually, you know, you're not just going to get away with this. We're not just going to roll over. We've experienced what we experienced in COVID. And COVID is a bit different because, you know, they were saying we're all going to die from this deadly disease. But this doesn't have the same um, fear impact as COVID did. Okay, they're saying... Climate change is going to be the reason that they're going to lock us up in our towns and our homes this time, climate lockdowns. So I don't think it's going to be as easy, but I think what you did in Oxford reverberated around the world in terms of, you know, this this uh, awareness that people mm-hmm. are, are coming to with this digital gulags that they are um, trying to impose on us. And it seems that the pushback already, even at this stage, is beginning to have a ripple effect because, like you said, Canterbury has reversed their decision. Now, they've either reversed their decision because central governments have told them or they're getting nervous because this has to be implemented on a local level. And, yeah, yeah. and it's the councillors who live amongst us. They're not in some ivory tower in Westminster or even more so like billionaires in a different country. They have to live in our own community. So they're feeling the heat, I guess. Yeah, well, the thing is, before Oxford, to make an announcement about, like this was a virtue signaling thing. It was like, yeah. we're great. There was you know? no comeback really, was there? Well, well, they didn't think there was a comeback. They just thought, we're great, aren't we? Yeah. We're, we're, you know, this is this makes us look good. So before Oxford, it was like an announcement like this makes everybody think, oh yeah, my job's even safer now than it was before. You know, people think I'm better than I was before. Then once Oxford turned into like a cesspit, nobody wants to do that. So if you announce there's going to be a 15-minute city in your, in your city, that means your job's going to be less safe. Less, yeah. You're going to be less popular because... Right, Fred said they're coming. Right, yeah, right, said right Fred they're coming. Turning <laughs> up. There's a queue of 400 people outside yeah. leafleting. Mm. But so that's good because that... It, it becomes mean, a liability then. But it, yeah. Because then it's, it's it becomes um, a, a much more difficult decision-making process because up until now, there's been no resistance. They, yeah, we'll do whatever we want. What are the people going to do? Nothing. Yeah, so, so that's the thing. You know, I would say if I work... Because I've worked for councils for the last 30-odd years. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so so I know councils. It's like my whole life has been working towards this, before, you know, yeah. everything I've done. What did you do in the councils? An environmental health officer. Okay. So, I mean, I worked in public health, pollution, you know, air pollution in, in Barnet. So you've seen all the devastating effects of climate change of your front face. <laughs> well, down. in Barnet, I ran the council's um, clean air programme, which was funded by Boris Johnson when wow. he was the mayor, you know, so that was my baby, you know, so I know how yeah. they work. So you've got a unique advantage in this, haven't you, taking well, on local council, because if you've been behind the care and you understand the processes that are in place that yeah. well, make well, them well, work well, and operate. Well, I know, just roughly speaking, that now to bring in something like a 15-minute city is a hot mm. potato. They don't want to do it. So they're just going to wait now. 
they're not going to do it themselves. They're going to wait for the government to tell them to do it or, the, you know, so they've no choice. It's not their decision. Yeah. Or the government are going to do it and then... Well, that's what happened in Liverpool during COVID is that um, Joe Anderson, one of the most corrupt local politicians in Liverpool's history, which is saying something, <laughs> right, as um, he implemented Tier 3 lockdown. If you remember, do you remember Tier 3? That was well, when I they really the pushed tiers, it. Yeah. Uh, we're really going to push it. Tier 3, and that's what motivated us to you know, hit the streets was Tier 3. But he used um, the central government as the reason for doing it. He said, "Not my, I can't stop mm. this central government telling me. So, yeah, they will fall back on yeah, that if necessary. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's what will happen. Um, because before it was a, like a virtue signal thing. Yeah. Whereas now it's a, it's a bad thing. So they'll just wait for the government to force it through some other way. Yeah. So, you know, it's not gone away. It's just changed. But it's the, like everything. But, but, it's, but it's good though, isn't it? It's good that we're forcing them to change their plans and, and their tactics. Yeah, and not just that. We're learning how to do it. Yeah. And if something works, we do it more. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like we're together. I mean, some people don't agree, but arguably, because, you know, I was there, you know, I was doing it every day. We got... We were starting to get more and more MPs signing our declaration, like Graham Brady signed it, you know, lots of people were signing it. What were uh, they signing to? Signing our declaration, which was, we will not accept vaccine mandates, you know, basically, or yeah. passports in any way, that kind of thing. It's all Digital ID. Well, we, we didn't go that far. We, we were just on vaccine mandates okay. and passports. So, so you, you were getting some good momentum on that, some influential people were coming on board yeah, the declaration. Yeah, so much so that, and I know this because I, I know, because... With together, we had an advisor who is was a very high level conservative, like fixer, and um, she knew a thing or two. And basically, it all because the NHS. So w we had our our thing going, you know, vaccine passports, vaccine passports, mandates, mandates, and get momentum. And then the NHS, the hundred thousand sort of got going. The, the hundred thousand people who were against, I forget exactly. It sort of joined forces. And then the key thing then was that Lord Frost resigned on the Saturday. Boris Johnson was going to announce more a Christmas lockdown on the Monday. Mm -hmm. And then Lord Frost resigned on the Saturday. And that basically precipitated that Boris couldn't make the announcement and lockdowns were cancelled and basically COVID, mandates were cancelled yeah. and basically COVID disappeared. And then I remember how quick it just yeah, fell apart. It just, it was, and, yeah. and then, and then it was completely erased when the Ukraine thing happened. because yeah. if there was any doubt, well, then they it just transitioned. To the propaganda just moved seamlessly. Yeah, there's, there's that Bob Moore and cartoon <laughs> where yeah. you know, once the COVID's going off stage, like the guys yeah, are pulling, pulling, yeah, and, yeah. And pulling Ukraine on. It but, was incredible to see that, though. It really was because if you were red pilled to what was happening, then you could see it in real time. Go, wow, are they really doing that? But, yeah. yeah, but the. The key thing is that the person in the Tory party told me um, the reason for the, the reason Frost resigned was because COVID and lockdowns and everything had now become a leadership issue. Obviously, you know, we've had two prime ministers since, so it obviously did. But but the reason he resigned was because at that point, right there and then, anybody who wanted to be a future prime minister, mm. turns out it wasn't, but um, felt that they had to be on the the opposite side now on COVID. So they mm. had to distance themselves from COVID or later on they couldn't 
you know, yeah. lead. Um, so that's why Frost resigned. And that's and sort of why uh, everything sort of folded. But but I, th- I think it also goes to show that we can actually be effective because that's the... the oh, the, yeah, well, the, that was my point that I got they, into that. Yeah, the yeah. thing that they want us to think, right, is that we are just little people and um, we don't have any voice, really. We don't have any influence. Is that they want us demoralised so we don't push back. But the re- reality is, is when you do push back, even on a small scale, like 400 people in Oxford can actually put the whole 15-minute plan on ice. Technically, it's arguable if we did, but... Well, I'm going to say you did. Okay, we'll say <laughs> the whole point of all that was to get sort of digital ID and, yeah. and CBDCs and all that, and net, you know, what do you call it, um, social credit, basically. So we stopped that. They thought they might get it instantly yeah. that way. So they're not. They have to go around the other way. I mean, I, I, I've also been in... in interested in the last 20 years in in startups you know like you know silicon valley startups yeah. and stuff and how you people come up with an idea for a business or service and how they get that to customers using it is a is a is a you know complicated process you have to get people to use your product and sometimes the 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 metaphor is like a, a quarterback in american yeah. football is sometimes you have, you have to go a crazy path that you're just making up as you go and you don't know where you're going to be in three seconds time all over the place and sometimes going backwards to go forwards and then you get there and you score your yeah, yeah, touchdown. But the, at the same metaphor, the defence can also block the path of the quarterback so they can't make the play. Right? Yeah. They run out of space, they run out of time or well, whatever. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. But, but so they're sort of doing their roundabout thing to try and get the same yeah. effect. But, but they um, won't give up, that's for sure, but no, neither should yeah. we. But but at least it buys us some time. Definitely. And um and the same with the fifty minute city. So I mean I'm there sort of dead in the water now in that format. So that's bought us a bit of time. Because I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is that CBDCs, fifteen minute cities, digital ID, all of these dystopian, tyrannical um, technologies that they're trying to bring into, uh, you know, in, into our world can only really do so under the cover of darkness. Because if people really knew what they were, they would be up in arms and resist. And I think that's what it is. It's an informational war. It's trying to get the word out to enough mm. people in order to create enough resistance that they can't just rush it through. They can't just sneak it in at the dead of night. They have to be fully revealed and then face the the, the electorate. Yeah, well, that's what that's why. I mean, the first thing I did was that lockdown truth. I was trying to get mm. things to go viral because I want information to get out there. Then I set up COVID nineteen assembly. The reason I used the word assembly was because I wanted it to become the center of people sort of coming in mm. to get together and work together to get information out. Alex Jones nailed it with his uh, his brand Infowars. That's what it is. We're you know yeah. informational warfare. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it is all about information and. And, you know, I, I don't like using the word media anymore for that stuff because it's it's literally propaganda. It's a propaganda machine. Mm. I mean, if you look at, you know, whoever it is who's in charge, you know, who wants to influence us, basically they use the, what's, what we call the media as just a propaganda arm. It's all they, you know, that's exactly what it is. They want something to happen. They use their propaganda machine to convince us that, you know, we let them do it. Well, that's one of that's one of like an early red pill for people when they become aware of what's actually going on, is that they realise that the media 
is a centralized controlled arm of um, this um, billionaire oligarch class that are trying to influence events from a supranational level above and beyond a national interest and that the media is just one big controlled arm there is no difference in them you know there's like four companies that own all the media in the world kind of thing and um, when they want to disseminate a message they can do so through all organs of uh, media almost simultaneously that they're all speaking the same message at the same time they're all walking in lockstep which makes it difficult for the public if they're not aware that the media is controlled they think that this is happening in real time and it's true it's difficult for people to break the programming because it's coming from all angles at the same time it's completely enveloped Uh, tell us about how how have you ended up um you know, on the front line of the freedom movement. What was your transition? Because COVID was a double-edged sword in some ways for them because the amount of people that are now awake to the corruption in uh, the UK at the very least, which, you know, at first is demoralising to realise how deeply um, corrupt the the country is and how um, the power is slowly being ceded away from the people to these giant um, billionaire oligarchs. What was your journey to to that realization? Before two thousand and three, <clears throat> my life was relatively simple. I mean, I worked as an environmental health officer sort of all my life, but occasionally I'd escape to go <laughs> into motor racing. So I worked in in Formula One. I worked for the Williams Formula One team when they were still winning winning championships, and I learned a lot through that. I learned graphic design, I learned about business and marketing and, and all that kind of thing and environmental health. I used to do track and trace from Heathrow Airport for real diseases, you know, like yeah. you know, like people with cholera come in from India or something. And like we know they have it because they were on the plane and the doctor in the airport informs us. And then we go and go find them in Southall or wherever they are and, and make sure they're not going to work or they're not So good. you knew all these mechanisms already? Yeah, well... Because it's the Public Health Act is the thing that actually locked us down. It wasn't COVID legislation. Right. And I was using the Public Health Act wow. the previous 30 years. So that was that. But it was like talking about media. Um, what woke me up, I was completely oblivious. I didn't care about politics yeah. at all. Wow. No interest whatsoever in anything. Just motor racing, trying to make money. That's all I was interested in. Um, and And then Tony Blair sent tanks to Heathrow Airport and he had all these tanks around Heathrow Airport and the you know remember, soldiers yeah, with their yeah. heads stuck up outside the thing in the build-up to the Iraq war and I just went hang on what's going on they're trying to scare us and I and that was from nowhere Did like triggered you that was the yeah, catalyst there was no processing it wasn't like I was gradually wondering about the war I just didn't care and next second I go they're trying to scare us. Amazing. And that was it. From that moment on, I was I was sort of awake. There was a gradual, you know, discovered more and more stuff. But um, and so technically, I thought you know I was I was a left winger at that mm. point, you know, for about ten years, and um, you know, anti-war, yeah, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Um, you know, I still am. against no, anti-war. You know, just, just yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> like you know, you're anti-George Bush, you know, all yeah. that sort of stuff. Although I accidentally didn't even notice it, but I called my son George W. Fleming. You know, <laughs> without even realizing at the time. So then the big thing come like 2019, 2018, 2019. 
I mean, I've been having, I've, I mean, I was big into climate for about 10 years at that point. What do you mean you were big into climate? Well, the, you know, climate like, agenda. Well, in, in 20, in 2009, I was having a conversation with my friend. Um, and again, I wasn't even thinking about it, even though I'm an environmental health officer, I've done a, I have a degree in environmental science, you know, I've, I still just thought climate change was happening and mm -hmm. whatever they were saying on the news was true, you know. Yeah. And then my friend, we, we weren't having a, an argument or discussion. He just mentioned for some reason that carbon dioxide tracked, you know, if you look at ice core samples, yeah. carbon dioxide tracked temperature by, you know, five or 800 years or whatever. And whether it was true or not is irrelevant because that made me click. It just a little thing went click. And then I looked it up, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And then and then I just said, oh, it's all rubbish then. You know, I mean, it, the climate isn't, you know, caused by CO2, et cetera. And um, it might have helped that within a week, I had a meeting with people in motorsport who just spontaneously had a conversation about climate change being a load of rubbish. Mm. And I went, oh, I agree. Because that was my first time ever having a, yeah. a, a, a position on it. 2018, well, the first thing that happened was Extinction Rebellion appeared. And I remember Roger Harlem saying, oh, yeah, we're going to get people arrested. People are going to go to jail. And so I, I something in my head said, this is a, a sort of a step up. Because climate always seemed to be being like a can being kicked down the road, mm. like for the last 30 years. You know, we, it's like, OK, it's never going to happen, really, is it? But when Harlem said that, and then I accidentally actually saw one the first Extinction Rebellion protests in London. And then shortly after that, Greta Thunberg turns up, you know, with her school strike thing. And then my kids start going off school on Fridays. Did you know that the health of your pineal gland has a direct impact on how long you live? Also known as the third eye, the pineal gland is like the conductor of your body's hormone orchestra and plays a vital role in the secretion of melatonin, which regulates your circadian rhythms and sleep patterns. It also plays an essential role in brain protection. That's why it's so important that it functions properly. Sub Optimal pineal gland function can lead to chronic health issues such as sexual disorders, mood swings, depression, and many other challenging conditions. But the good news is there is a solution and it comes in the form of the miracle molecules known as peptides. Peptides are short strings of amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. It's been discovered that 5% of short two amino acid chains or dipeptides are gene switches, and they fit perfectly into the DNA spiral to switch single genes that are there. Endolutin is a dietary supplement containing natural pineal gland peptides that can normalize the pineal gland operation. 30 million patients scientific studies proved they work. As a supporter of Eyes Wide Open, you can get a 5% discount on Endolutin and other peptides available from our sponsor, Profound Health. Click the link below or go to profoundhealth.com and use the code Eyes Wide Open. Invest in yourself, slow down the aging process, have more energy and increase your lifespan today. And so that was that. And then in November, the Democrats won the midterms mm -hmm. and Ocasio-Cortez appeared like days after. I remember thinking it was very suspicious just after she got elected. 
there was a video went viral of her dancing when she was a student, like just on a rooftop, just doing a little sort of private dance. You know, it's a very simple thing. But it went viral and some people said disparaging things about her. And that was then used as sort of a weapon to say, oh, you, you're terrible people. It's like, what's wrong with a girl dancing? You know, mm-hmm. you're nasty, you know, misogynists and whatever, or racists or anything. <laughs> and that raised her profile up instantly. She was just, she, I don't care what she'd done before. I mean, technically she was a waitress, but I literally don't know what else she did before. But she just got elected and all of a sudden she was world famous. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, like within another couple of weeks or whatever, um, she's publishing this Green New Deal. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. it was the first time we'd heard about this thing. And it was a ridiculous thing. It was like n- no flights ever again anywhere. And with, everyone laughed at it, I remember, because yeah. it was so ridiculous. And build a bridge to Europe yeah. across the Atlantic. Yeah. And it was so ridiculous that, like you said, you'd laugh at it. So that when they went, oh, no, OK, well, because there was the Overton window. She moved the Overton. Well, it wasn't. She was doing this at the Overton window. <laughs> but by the time it settled yeah, and they were saying, OK, no, well, well massively reduced flights, retrofit every house with mm. in, insulation, blah, blah. And that all that sounded okay compared to what she was talking about. Yeah. So she'd moved. She'd moved the over to the extreme as she, yeah. she she could, so that they'd settle on something a little less. Yeah, which is like a, a Hegelian dialectic, you know. Yeah. And um, and that was that. And then after Christmas, Theresa May basically signed us up to net zero. Yeah. Because she went on holiday to Italy and the glacier she saw 10 years earlier was a bit shorter than it had been the last time she was there. And uh, a quick, you need some kind of crazy story to justify signing us up to net zero. And I looked it up recently, that went through on the Nord, but nobody, you know, protested it at all. Because no one really knows what it is or what it was or the implications that it had for, you know, where we're at now. And that's right, is that we've had all of these crazy climate theories for a long time. And like you say, it's been kicked into the future. You know, the future generations are going to be the ones that have to deal with the climate change. It holds in the ozone layer, but now it's here. It's happening, isn't it? We're in the middle of the, you know, the implementation of net zero and these um, yeah. I mean, attainable it was, goals. It was funny because when Tony Blair was leaving, like he was just handing over what was left of the government to Gordon Brown, mm. I remember him saying, and don't worry about the climate, technology will fix it. And I just thought, oh, yeah, sounds OK. Yeah. And this this would have been after I woke up just about, but but I didn't know many details yet. I realised then, like summer 2019, that, oh, no, we're, this is this is bad stuff. We have to do something. So I started registering, coming up with ideas. And that was when I came up with the idea about getting information out to the public. You know, we really need to get information out to the public, which is what, what might be my thing ever since. But I still didn't know what to do because it was just me. And, you know, it sounded, yeah. seemed such a big thing. I didn't know how to get started. And then... Then, like, lockdown stop starts, you know. Boris Johnson tells us all to stay home and not go out. What and was your position on... Because uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a veteran of government psyops. I know one when I see one and, you know, I, I can uh, spot them from a mile off and smell them straight away. And I knew from day one it was... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it was a load of nonsense. And, and uh, oh. how, when, did you, when did you also come to that realisation? Oh, well, no, I knew all along. Well, at first... Well, there's two phases. I mean, I knew about swine flu from 2009 and I knew that was just rubbish and they're always trying to hype things up for whatever reason. I mean, I know they're the bad guys, but it could just be for money, but who knows? 
so I, I knew that any anything like this, I knew it was going to be rubbish anyway. But as soon as they locked us down, yeah, it was obviously a, a huge step further than they had before with swine flu and SARS. The original it was like they were building up to that, you know, yeah. new, new point. And as soon as they locked us down, I just knew what it was going to be. I just knew it meant this was a, a, an acute thing. This was a, a, a you know, it was, it was a really obviously you know, serious position you're putting people in and it's going to be difficult and hard. And that it was it was basically like hitting us over the head with a mm. hammer and then knocking us to the floor. And when we when they stop hitting us, we'll get up and then we'll just be happy to be a net zero, basically. Yeah, I think the fly in the ointment was Putin going into Ukraine because it kind of disrupted that narrative because maybe that was what was meant to happen is we were meant to go seamlessly from COVID into the net zero climate lockdowns. But all of a sudden they had to drop, you know, one set of propaganda because, you know, what happened in Ukraine kind of took everyone's eyes off the ball. Yeah, although the thing is, you see, I don't think anything happens, you know, in this world mm -hmm. without the cabals uh, say so. And also don't forget, if they wanted to make little of this, they'd have just ignored it. You know, mm. they'd just, you know, if 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 they had their own agenda to, for stuff at home, they could have just said, "That's none of our business. That's an internal matter." You know, they could have still done whatever they wanted. Mm. So I don't know. We'll talk about your new project now, but that's kind of uh, the reason I asked that because you know we come to this realization that the country is screwed. Everything is corrupt. The government bought and paid for. The NHS is just totally corrupt, a big farmer. The media are totally controlled by transnational corporations or oligarchs out of our view. And it seems the country is just being sold down the river and we're losing more and more of our freedoms and our rights are being roughshod. And, it seems to be like, you know, we use the word global cabal, but it actually really is. And you know, I think at the, the centre of that is the, the whole banking scam, because when you've got unlimited money, you can buy whoever you want, pretty much. But, you know, the, the biggest problem is the fact that we have 650 MPs, overwhelming majority of whom would just do as they're told. And either due to the party political system itself being broken and the fact that, you know, these people can be bought and they are bought and working against the interests of the people that they're meant to represent, as we've just seen with what's just happened over the last few years, they were all against us pretty much. Now, I know your new project is still gestating, but it's pretty ambitious. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what your ideas are for solving these big meta problems that are seem overwhelming in the face of it, and uh, how would you go about fixing Britain? Yeah, well, it's not just Britain, the world. Yeah, yeah. But, but if we <laughs> yeah, start yeah, yeah. at home, we I can know, yeah. uh, work from there. Well, that's that's the whole plan. Um, yeah, well, like everything you just said in that little summary uh, of what's wrong, all those points are, you know important like bits of the puzzle like you can't talk about the 650 mps of the two-party system without looking at where they came from in the first place i mean uh, 
there's so much to do, talk about. But okay, if I I would like to do an experiment, but you know it'll probably never happen. But I'd like to sit down with maybe some six formers or something, or GCSE, you know, older kids maybe, and and just sit down in a room for two hours or something, or maybe a, a, a few, you know, it could be a longer project. But just say, right, I give you ten trillion pounds. It's starting from a white, you know, sheet of paper. I give you ten billion pounds. You come up with how you can take over the world, you know, and and see what they come up with. You know, just say you did that in a hundred. Someone asked ChatGPT that question, and they came up with this really detailed plan of how to take over the world. Well, maybe. Yeah. Well, but you know, if you ten trillion pounds to start off with, mm-hmm. that's a lot of money, obviously, and um, you could. You could have a shopping list. You could just say, "Okay, well, well let's let's buy up universities, buy up." You so, know. if you had a blank check like the global cabal do have, yeah, yeah. 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 So, if, so it was, if the roles are reversed, what would you do? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's what I'm saying. So, I think you people. I'm not saying this is what we do, but this is what the cabal are doing. Mm-hmm. So, it it's it's to prove the point that it can be done. Mm. And obviously, history has shown us over you know thousands of years that. There will always be people trying to do this, trying to take over the world that they know, you know, the the, the, the known world. They're all they're always at it, you mm-hmm. know. So this is no different. So they're they're doing it now. Whatever the reason, I don't know their ultimate reason. I don't know who they are, you know. I know probably some of the key players, maybe, maybe don't know some of them. I don't know exactly how they're working together. You can sort of guess that there seems to be a way that some of them are working together. But it's almost irrelevant as what they're doing. But the key point is that at some point, whoever they are, they're influencing our government. And that's where our problems start. Yeah. So that's that's where I believe the problem has to start. So you know, the, the point the, of attack the, is yeah. Westminster. Because any other level, there's no mechanism to attack because mm. you and I can't vote out um, the well, the state has the monopoly on violence. So the state is able to use its executive power in order to enforce legislation that goes through parliament. So if they want to send the police round to you to close your pub because you're open during COVID, they will send them down round, you know, mob handed, and they won't have, they won't think twice about using violence against you to kick you out your, your yeah, property. Yeah. So that's why parliament is important because it has the monopoly on violence. But yeah, but you know, it's it's like at what stage can we stop this? But, you, you know, we can't get rid of the who, just you and me, you yeah. know. We when can't you say get, the who, you mean the World Health Organization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, we can't get rid We You and I can't get out of the UN. No. We can't do anything like that. It has to be our government that gets us out of these things. Yeah. And, and they're not, you know, they're not doing their job. And so basically that's where we have to focus our efforts is the, the government. Like the pe- you know, the people who are in power. I've done a lot of research on this in the last few weeks, but like we always had monarchs in in England and then Britain, um, and they were all powerful. And then we had the, the complicated period with Cromwell and stuff. But ever since Cromwell and the Restoration, <clears throat> things settled down into a sort of a two party system mm-hmm. where you had only only wealthy men had the vote, and they would they had a two party system and. It shows how complicated things were in those days. And the two parties were the Tories and the Whigs. And the only difference between the two was one thought the monarch should never be Catholic. And one thought 
it's okay if he's Catholic, even if we don't agree with it, we don't like Catholics, but he can be Catholic because that's what God has chosen. And, you know, and that was the only difference between the two. Um, and then the real power was still with the monarch, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the wealthy people, the wealthy classes. But they allowed the people to think they were in charge, you know, so that the people were voting for these two parties and whoever was going to be in charge, Disraeli or somebody, <clears throat> they think you know, they wouldn't fight the good monarch anymore because they thought they were in control with these two parties. And then, the, you know, there was gradually pressure to have universal suffrage for all men and women as well. And um, so you can see just before the the men were given the vote, the all you know, universal suffrage, you could see that the, they split the the Liberal Party. So you had the Tories and the Whigs turned into the Liberal Party. And the the Whigs, and they'd be all, it was a bit like the Tories and Labour now, it'd be one or the other every couple of um, elections. But then the Liberal vote got, basically the Liberals split and became like ineffectual. And then Labour suddenly appeared. There had been a Labour effort to be, get into power for years, but there was no, none of the poor people had the vote, so it, it didn't happen. But then Labour sort of started to get a bit more popular and then universal suffrage came in and then that, that was it. Ever since then, it's been... For, so for a for hundred years, we've had the, the Tories and the Labour um, two-party system. And because obviously it's like they learned, they didn't give us all the vote until they'd learned how to work the two-party system. And um, so it's just that left, right, left, right, left, right, and mm-hmm. nothing happens. Um, so basically, the two-party system has kept us in control ever since. And it, like you said, also like about bribery and stuff. So the two-party system ensures that they can control the outcome. <laughs> you know, well, if both parties have roughly the same policies, mm-hmm. then they win. Yeah. You know, and they can have little, little, little differences, like oh, yeah, more rights for workers and or less tax for rich people. But everybody gets net zero. Yeah. You know, it's it's the same thing because that was the thing. Because when Boris Johnson won the election on Brexit. Net zero was in there, and Labour had net zero in their yeah. manifesto which as well. Is, which is the fundamental policy, which yes. is the policy that will shape all other policies. Yeah. So Brexit was didn't matter at all, really. Yeah. Net zero was the big thing. Mm. Um, so so they control that, and then so you got the two party system is is generally controlling the whole thing. But within that, all the MPs are selected in the first place, mm-hmm. and you, you don't select someone who you know is going to be against the party, because I mean. Andrew Bridgen's side recently, 650 MPs, not one of them resigned mm-hmm. all the way through COVID. Not one of them, you know. They all thought, oh, yeah, this is okay. Yeah. You know, no problem. I'm well, they had the protection of the state. They had the protection of the media. They were able to keep themselves distant from the constituents. So they were insulated from the criticism that they should face. But but it's like not one of them thought morally they no. should leave. I mean... I've, I leave jobs all the time. I mean, you know, I, if I had been an MP, I would have been out there straight away. I think it's a really cushy number, isn't it? It's a high well, status position. Well, that's why, you yeah. know, the European MPs, they're, uh, it's just a, a total a dream train. Yeah, yeah total completely. Dream train. Not one of them wants to leave. You know? <clears throat> but I think that's, I think you're right. I think what COVID did is expose who the real shills are, who the real grifters are, right? And a lot of them are, can be found in Westminster because they just all sat it out. And why weren't they fighting for the people? Because for them, party comes before their own people. Mm, yeah, well, completely. I mean, it, it. yeah, it goes to show completely not one of them could, give a toss about, mm-hmm. about any of this but the people don't count they they 
it proves they're not representing their people. Exactly. And and that's basically what we have to do. So so there's obviously so working backwards, we need to get rid of the party system yeah. in Parliament. And to because do, our system wasn't actually created to be a party political system anyway. It was, it was that that's only been added on later. Yeah, and also America didn't have parties either. Yeah, you know, because the, um, the representative goes yeah. to represent the people the, from the constituency, not a party. So the thing is to get into to actually be the government, you have to be a party. Mm. So I mean, very very roughly, our plan is to, you know. Ideally, so I'm going to yeah. talk about ideal scenarios here. The ideal scenario is we get a majority in government with independent candidates, although at first they'd be an independent party. Mm-hmm. So they'd be a party of independence. They get into power. Once in power, obviously have a majority, because so we're talking ideal scenarios here. They would then repeal stuff, change stuff, you know, change the system of, you know, proportional representation. in. even if, obviously, if this happens, we will have won by first past the post, but we will still put in uh, proportional representation, ban parties at that level in Parliament. I mean, you can't stop later on in subsequent elections if this all happened. You know, the independents would break into factions, so you would have the the freedom faction, yeah. to put a word in it. You'd have, like, Labour and Tories might have got working hard and they'll they'll have they'll have their independence in there and, and the and the factions will be have the policy suggested to them by, you know, think tanks, you know, so you'd have a Labour think tank. So that that would happen eventually down the line. But we could do a hell of a lot in the first parliament to turn back because imagine day one of the new parliament hmm. and the BBC is suddenly telling the truth. So, you know, like all the I don't even know. If, uh, You'd have to replace all of the, you know, the, the shills and hacks oh, yeah, first. Get Hugh Edwards in and he'd be uh, <laughs> telling, yeah. telling the truth. Mm. And um, so, yeah, so you'd be pumping out the truth all the time and the public will start thinking, OK, this is real. So if if Labour and Tories eventually come back over maybe another couple of parliaments mm. and they're still lying, then the public will have, will, will have got wise to it by then, hopefully. So... So, so that's the idea. So, we, replace we, Parliament with a coalition of independents, six hundred and fifty MPs, if possible. Yeah. So, have a majority in government, repeal stuff, yeah. make new laws, and and basically, obviously, depoliticize the institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, all that kind of thing. Cut off. Uh, the, the most important thing is to cut off influence from like lobbyists and international actors or anybody. You know, basically. I mean, uh, imagine the independent MP goes into so. If, a representative of the local area, you know, from there, not necessarily a showy person, you know, um, and they go into Parliament like on a very thick elastic rope, mm-hmm. you know. So the slightest question about their behaviour and their a recall, yeah, back. We, we don't have a recall system, yeah. do we? We'd have, yeah, yeah, we'd have all that. They, they they can just get straight back into the, the recalled like. Uh, if there's like a quorum in but the- it, it's, it's revealing in itself isn't it that there isn't a mechanism no, yeah. for the people to recall well, exactly. their, 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 their representatives yeah. to answer to the to but the, then, to the, then the European you know the EU built yeah. on that yeah. and, and perfected it <laughs> yeah. I mean the EU has got yeah, answerable yeah. to nobody well nobody. they're paymasters there's absolutely yeah. nothing mm. you can do about the EU mm. I mean I can't believe people pe- people I know who were re- remained all they think about is like free movement, you know, the, the shiny yeah, thing. Yeah, the holiday. Yeah. Go on holiday but, they're not, but they're not they're not they're not 
you know, interested really in, in democracy for the people. Or well, the, they're not even aware of it. No. Well, it was like me before Tony Blair sent tanks to Heathrow. You know, <laughs> that's what I look at it. You know, I yeah. think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny though, isn't it, that that was your trigger point? You know, that yeah. it was lying latent in you, in well, your like, character, yeah, and I, it was dormant, you, and it was just waiting to be triggered. Yeah, you could never have predicted that, yeah. and that's why that's why leaflets indoors, I think, are great because you can never predict who's going to wake, wake up. up. Yeah, yeah, really good points. Really good points. You, you can't walk up to a person and says, "I'm going to convert them now." You know, I mean, so, so okay, then you know, we're going to get 650 um, new independent MPs elected into parliament. What would be the tactical approach to make that happen? How would you overcome, you know, the discrepancy between the existing political parties and all of the funding and experience they have with a coalition of independents? How do you make that happen? Yeah, well, there's there's a number of things. I mean, obviously, so the existing parties have a lot of resources behind them. Mm -hmm. But you could say that we've got the most, you know, we've got, you know, potentially. Well, I think you've proved it on a small scale with, mm. with Oxford because Oxford was people power, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically that idea, really. Yeah. You see, I look at it as, OK, we, we won't, you know, if as it's going to happen over the next few months, we don't, we will not have, we certainly don't now, we, we will not have a budget for TV ads or anything like that. So that's mm -hmm. nothing. It's going to have to be grassroots. It's going to have to be that sort of Oxford idea. Yeah. People just getting out there in the community, talking to people. Hack the process. Yeah. And and it, the, the key thing is that it's just people talking to people they already know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so if you work out, Roughly, so the current, the most recent um, polling um, surveys from a week or two ago had Labour on about 42 and the Tories on about, oh, I forget, like 20 or something or 23 or whatever. So it's threatening a, a new Labour landslide. Yeah, yeah. But but they're the numbers of voting intent, like people just say what they'll vote. But in a real election, 35% of people don't vote. Mm -hmm. So the reality is at the moment, if you have the figures in front of you of who's voting, 35% won't vote for anybody. About 28 will vote for Labour, about 18 will vote for Tory, and then like 10 Lib Dem, six Reform at the moment, six Green. You know, it's small numbers. The biggest number is 35. Mm. Now that 35% of non-voters is I'm in that thirty five percent. Well, I, I was as well. Yeah. I never voted yeah. until Brexit. Yeah. First time, I voted a couple of times for show just to show me kids that I vote. You know, yeah. <clears throat> I was just voting for some local independent. Yeah. I didn't even care whether it's just, just the kids would see me ticking a box. So I literally never voted ever because of that. Because mm. I knew it make no difference. Yeah. Now I know a percentage of people don't vote because you know. They couldn't care less. They mightn't even know there's an election on, you know, there's mm. no interest. But there's going to be, say, 50% of those, 18% maybe, of the electorate who don't vote because they're disenfranchised, like you and me, mm -hmm. who would vote for somebody if they thought it would make a difference. And we have to stand up and say, this is it. We're going to make that difference. Yeah. Vote for us. Well, with all of the alternative media, we've kind of got a bit of infrastructure in place to be able to disseminate that message. Yeah, well, that, that's that, going to that, be the hardest part, that, isn't it? Well, that's the key part. Well, you know, you see, the thing is, I wouldn't even think about doing this if I didn't think I had it all sorted out. So yeah, yeah. I think I think I've got the, the how, you know, worked out. But yeah, so if you get a chunk of that 35%, mm -hmm. 
you're halfway there or more than halfway there because you only have to take a little bit of the protest focus. So about 15% of the country vote Tory, whatever happens, you never yeah. change that. And about 15% vote Labour. Everyone never swinging in the middle. What, yeah, you'll never change those 15s, but there's a 10 that swings from each to the other, depending, you know, you know, who oh, fed up with them, yeah. both of them. And some will never vote, some Labour's will never vote Tory, so they'll vote Lib Dem. And some Tories will yeah. never vote Labour, so they vote Lib Dem. So you've got these protest votes. So you just get a bit of those two, and yeah. then you'll have the freedom vote that's out there, the, the people who vote for reform or, or UKIP still. And, and we form part of the coalition of independence, I guess. Yeah, so before you know it, if you get a chunk of those non-voters, yeah. you've got 27%. So you don't even need to be the majority because you can wield a lot of influence as a part of a smaller coalition. Well, that's that's later on if you right. don't win. But but no, you, you can get first past the post. You can get 25%. And get first past the post with 25%. Yeah, and you could have 25% and Labour have 24 That's not much of a move from the current 28 Yeah. And they'll come down eventually. I mean, you know, and Tories will come back up a bit. But if you're going to take them from anyone right now, it's going to take them from the Tories, aren't you? That's where they're going to... That's where the, the votes are up for grabs, really. Yeah, but don't forget, there's a 15% who won't vote for anyone else. Yeah. So we've got 3% to play with there. But I, I don't even want them. I, I want, say, the the, the non-voters, the protesters, you know, the, the people who, who move from Labour to Tories because... They're always fit up with the current government, but some of them might come but you know, up you to remember, us. But you remember in the last election, it was unprecedented. You had the red wall that was defeated, mm. which was people in, in Labour strongholds, Labour constituencies have always voted Labour, didn't take the protest vote, actually voted Tory for the first time and made those Tory, um, you know, constituencies. So th there is that portion of the electorate who will go to the extreme and vote for the Tory party, which like you wouldn't... Yeah, because it's like common sense. Yeah. And and one of my sort of strap lines that I'm working on is um, that, I, like, well, I've done it, I might use it though, is common ground is common sense, hmm. you know? So just to get the idea out there that, look, it's common sense. I mean, is it sensible to do X, Y, Z? I mean, the thing is, in the last couple of weeks, since the Uxbridge, um, elect, you know, by-election, the the toys that start to roll back on you, Les, That's and, right, yeah. and um and the oil even line. even Tony Blair came out and said mm, net zero might not be really our problem. I think it's China's problem, which is unprecedented for him because yeah. he's built a career on the back of uh, net well, you zero. See, I think this is all part of. Not ceding any more ground. Well, it's like they've drawn a line. They said, okay, Labour, you can have the next election. Yeah. And now Tories, your new job is to start rolling back a bit on the net zero stuff so that basically to head off any grassroots mm. party that might rise up like us. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons, you know, that we we could be successful is because there'd be a grassroots upset, you know, rising against ULES and all that stuff. Nasiro. Um so if the Tories start to occupy that space, yeah. they know they're going to lose the election, but, but it's, so it's a blocking move. Yeah, they'll yeah. soak up those votes to stop someone like us. But you know, we just have to get the word out there that you know it's common sense that you know it, 
it's it, it's going to happen anyway. You know, whoever's in power. Well, I mean, the next four years, if La- if Labour get in, you know, they're, they're dead in the water. Mm. There's been a little bit of a precedent about what you're talking about in, in Liverpool in the last local elections. Um, <clears throat> friend of mine, guest on the podcast, been on twice. Lawrence Kenwright, he's a hotelier in Liverpool, and you know, um, he ran a campaign against Liverpool City Council Labour. City Council for a long time for the fraud and corruption that is embedded, is endemic in Liverpool City Council and has been exposed through various government reports. You know, the mayor of Liverpool got arrested by the police and there's ongoing investigations and it's undeniable the scale of fraud and corruption within Liverpool Labour City Council. So Lawrence Kenwright organised a coalition of independents called Liberate Liverpool and they ran, you know, in the law Local elections, but the Labour Party um, won by landslide, despite all of this evidence against them. Although the argument was made that the people didn't know about this evidence, that it, the, the fraud and corruption was actually still quite buried, and because the local um, newspaper, the Liverpool Echo, obviously was batting for the Labour Party and wasn't doing its job and telling the people the scale of fraud and corruption in in the council, and was just there to propagate the the message. Is they, you know, they they they, um, they didn't win a seat, and they ran a campaign. It was it was pretty good, but I think they probably launched too late I think that mm. was probably the, the fundamental error they made um, but they used all of the dirty tricks against the Liberate Liverpool candidates who were all independents the usual smears racist anti-Semite bigots whatever they could throw at the candidates they would throw it at them but it was almost like it was a bit I know Liverpool is probably an exception because it is a Labour stronghold but it was like you know what do people have to see before they will you know, move away from this tribal politics, but these people who are clearly not representing them, they're clearly ripping them off, they're clearly about to put them in a 15-minute city. And I think that that is what you'd have to overcome is this, you know, generational tribal loyalty to certain political parties. Mm. Yeah, but as I said, that, that they're like the 15%, yeah. 15% who will never vote for anyone else. So there's no point trying them. Um, that's why the, the no voters, the mm. people who don't usually vote are the big ones. And then, so... Uh, it's how you get them out to vote, isn't it? That's the key. Yeah, well, that's it. So the, the thing is, so, okay, going back to one thing you mentioned about how, how to get there. So one thing that we don't have at the moment is unity. So I'm not saying we're all fighting with each other, but we're all fighting different fronts. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a war and our army is fighting on like a hundred different fronts. I mean, I, I just sat down, did a rough, a very quick um, low hanging fruit of what we're doing at the moment. And you've got like ULES, CBDCs, cash, leave the WHO, no to NATO. You know, it's lockdowns, obviously vaccine harms, vaccines, you know, new vaccines for kids, you know, everything. There's, there's so many different things that is going on in the, you know, quote, freedom movement that we're on so many different fronts that, no army would win a war because you don't know where to attack is it there's no well we're well it's it's like you know ants attacking an elephant you know they're not going to win because none of the bites are are going to take down the elephant are they Mm. um so it's like a cartoon where the ants get together and and turn into hammers and hit the elephant on the head or something but you know we're we're on different now obviously the thing is 
everybody, you know, we've got lots of different organizations doing all these, you know, running campaigns and stuff. And we we need a common focus. Now, the thing is, you people could say, oh, yeah, we all work together and stop doing our other stuff. And that's a way to control us and stop mm -hmm. the fight. So, you know, I'm not saying we want to centralize control of all the groups, but I'm just saying all the groups should give some of their resources and platform and time, you know, if they can spare it, but hopefully try and make time, make some space for it to focus on a common a common goal. So, I, I, you know, I use D-Day and Brexit as examples. So D-Day, you know, I mean, whatever you think about the World War, World War II generally, but let's just say it was exactly as it was laid out to us. They wanted to get control of the continent of Europe again from the, the, the Axis forces. So they want to get a beach hold in Normandy mm -hmm. to to funnel stuff in from the UK in, in there and take over. So the, the first thing they did was they had to get hold of a little bit of Normandy and that was the Normandy landing. So D-Day. So, you know, there were conflicting, there, there were competing ideas of what to do for that. But they all agreed on that. Well, they eventually, you know, you know, people didn't all, they didn't all agree on it, but they all agreed to do it, yeah. you know. And even when then the plan was being made to do that, you know, D-Day, they were still arguing about it. And there was, there was, I forget his name though, but there was one guy who was in charge of holding it all together. And, um, and eventually it worked, mm -hmm. you know. So now that didn't stop the armies fighting in other, you know, theatres and stuff, but they were focused on that one. So it was a single action. So it was a single thing. And our single thing, so we're fighting on hundreds of different fronts at the moment. So we have to choose one thing to be the single thing that we all help on. And that has to be getting the public to tick a box, mm -hmm. you know, in their local constituency on election day. And that's it. So how do you do that? Well, we do it by, for instance, the like, you know, the people who do stand in the park on a Sunday morning yeah. and distribute the light and do the yellow borders, they all overlap. They're nearly usually the same people. So in a way, we want those same people again to set up the local committees in each of the constituencies. So that would be that. And then every other group, whatever they do, like, you know, I'm not choosing anybody here or picking on anybody, but just say, for instance, us for them, yeah. you know, they've got a new campaign, say, to stop, you know, um, sexualization of children in school, say, for the, the, um, the curriculum. So, for instance, if with their email they send out, they can target their, you know, whatever it is they want to talk about. And then as one option underneath a call to action for the public, they can say, and if if you don't believe, if you want to do something about this, you know, you know, donate here or whatever, go to this website and vote for your local, you know, coalition independent at the next election. That'll be a vote against, you mm -hmm. know, the sexualization of, you know, children's curriculums, you know. So voting for the independent MP will be a vote against CBDCs. It'll yeah. be a vote for cash. It'll be a vote. So it'll be all these groups will have, you know, a solution to their problem mm -hmm. will be this call to action for the public to vote for us. And so that's why that's where we can get our unity, because it's it's not selfish. We're not saying we want something from you. It's saying this is going to help you. It's going to help yeah. your your network, your people, your audience will benefit. It'll give, it'll help them if this works and it's a call to action for them. So it might engage them more. It's mm -hmm. this, And it's a simple call to action. That's one of the simple things. A simple task like 
D-Day well, obviously wasn't simple. It was one thing to focus on and a simple action like ticking the box, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that's it. And basically, and and it turns into a national campaign or like local. So every war, every constituency, we just the local people there just like grows, you know, gradually. And it's one to one. And the thing going back to um, how to focus on people, if we have enough people, you know, on the ground in a constituency, you know, hopefully we'd have somebody in every sort of extended family mm -hmm. and everybody will know who the non-voters are. Like, you know, I don't know, your cousin will know you don't vote and, you, and they'll say, why don't you vote? And say, oh, well, because X, Y, and Z. Well, do you know that, you know, if if you vote for the independence, that's, you know, they're going to fix that or whatever. And um, and that you have to do it because, you know, it'll be, it'll, it'll, it'll help make it happen. And for, for, for once your vote actually does count and you yeah. can make a difference. Well, I think we have to do something and we need ideas and it's great to hear your ideas and the fact that you're putting your time and your energy and your resources into this. What, what kind of, what kind of time scale are you looking at? What's, when's the, you know, do you want to be able to do this for the next election? Well, that's the trouble you see. Yes, basically, because you know, Keir Starmer's, you know, it, 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 I mean, he's been advised by Tony, Tony Blair, Blair. And, and Gordon Brown. <laughs> well, it's going to be an, another Blair government, isn't it? Well, Blair, much. Blair's putting in his uh, his net zero policy, and Gordon Brown is putting in his uh, New Britain. I've seen it. Policy. Yeah. So, but New Britain, you see, what we're trying to do now is we're trying to get we're trying to take over control power of well, we're trying to get a, a majority in the House of Parliament mm -hmm. and form a government. Because we still can. Yeah. Okay. Although it's a big task and a bit crazy, it can be done. We could, you know, in a year's time, we could be in power in in the UK. But if Keir Starmer gets his um, his way, that's impossible. They're going to break it up. They're going to yeah. yeah. And you, we will not be able to do that ever again. Mm. Um, so I think this is our last chance. And the only the only thing is. If we don't get in next time, if we kick up enough stink, like we were talking about mandates and 50 minute cities, if we don't, so, you know, obviously it's a big goal, but let's say we, we don't get in next in, in a year's time, then we have to make sure New Britain doesn't happen mm. in the next parliament. So we kick up a big stink and basically tell Keir Starmer, do not make that happen. Yeah, and I, I, challenge all the MPs, don't vote for that. And basically get like, a thousand people turns up at every MP's constituency to say, "Don't do that." We don't you, think you, enough people know about New Britain. I mean, we'll, we'll cover it now, but it, that's it. Yeah, we have to make it yeah. the story. Yeah, because if that happens, we can never vote out. Part you, know, we can never vote out. Uh, you know, Gordon Brown is an absolute loon. He is. Mm. He is some psychologically flawed individual. That guy. Well, if you're, um, I mean, look at look at Keir Starmer. I mean, you know, <laughs> but he, he, would, he would never be the Prime Minister of Britain. On merit, no, the no. only way that that guy is able to even be considered for such a high status, prestigious role as that is because he's astroturfed in. Is because he is simply Tony Blair's puppet, and he will, you know, act out whatever needs to be done and whatever needs to be said. Otherwise, you know, he wouldn't even be considered for such a role. And that's mm. the problem: is that a vote for Starmer is a vote for Blair. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the thing that we have to get that message across. Yeah. But if they do get in, we have to stop this New Britain thing yeah. so that we can build on what we've got. Because that's the thing. You see, I mean, there's, there's there's loads of ways of looking at this. I mean, 
you know, you've heard about the white hats, but, yeah. you know, we know they don't exist. Mm. But I've been challenging people over the last couple of weeks. Nobody knows of any plan to stop, you know. I mean, mm. obviously, we're all fighting on fronts on little issues, but it's like there's no there's no actual plan to stop all this. Mm. You know, the let's call it the cabal. Um, there's no plan to take down the cabal. <clears throat> Where's... Who's doing it? I mean, it's got to be the people, doesn't it? Really? Well, it has to be. Yeah. We have to do something, and it's um. So we need a step by step. We need a f something to focus on and say, right, we're going to do that, and we need to motivate people to unite to work on that point. Mm -hmm. And so that is basically, you know, I've worked out a way to get all the freedom movement working on this point. So, like as I said. Um, um, obviously, this is part of it, mm -hmm. but to get the idea out there that <clears throat> we're not, we don't want to step on anyone's toes. We don't want to do anything. Because um, the thing is, I when I started together, I thought that's, this is what I was doing. That's why I called it together. When I started COVID-19 assembly, that's what I was trying to do, because that's why I used the word assembly. Um, I went to the Great Rising in June in Stroud, which is set up by the, the, the hair group, mm -hmm. the holistic something um <clears throat> uh, it used to be called the hardwick alliance for real ecology now they've changed the hair uh the holistic alliance for real ecology but they um they were trying to motivate people to do this as well but and i went along thinking it would work <clears throat> richard vobes did a couple of pieces about it but they didn't come up they've no plan mm. so they got everybody in a room together again just like together someone said to me, good luck with your together meeting, you know, before I went. Um, so it's like together, but they didn't want to create an organization, a separate organization. <clears throat> but they've they've no plan. So uh, so that was when I went, right, that's it. I'm just going to go ahead with my plan and come up with an actual plan and just get people to rally around it. And I think once it's up and running, it will start attracting people, hopefully like a bit like a black hole, just yeah. draw people towards <laughs> it. And, you know, in an ideal world, parties would start, you know, like, I don't know, you know, the heritage reclaim, maybe mm. we'll start to say, OK, for the next parliament, we'll just... Throw our hand in. Yeah, we, we, we won't put up our own candidates. Well, they will, they can yeah. be independents and we'll just put our resources and effort into doing this. And I don't think that would ever happen with reform, but... I'll ask them, you know, yeah. and um, but if we all just coalesce around one goal, mm -hmm. then something might start happening. But if there's nothing there to coalesce around, nothing will happen. Does no, absolutely. So, You've got to proceed it, haven't you? And yeah. then let the culture take yeah. over. But it's a, uh, it's been great chatting to you. Really uh, grateful that I got a chance to hear about this, you know, new project, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it when. You uh, you launch it. We're going to you know close the podcast now. We're coming towards the end of the time we've got. Where can people find you online, David? Well, at the moment, like if you go to notourfuture.org, um, you'll find uh, the website. And are you on any of the platforms? Well, I'm on Twitter a bit, but I don't. You know, we don't do much really. You know, we just sort of promote stuff a bit. But Twitter, I forget. But if you look, if you if you search for Not Our Future, mm -hmm. you'll find it. Mm. Um, but it's not not our future. There's a, I think it's not underscore our future. Okay. I think not our future was a, a non-smoking campaign in in 
Australia, I think. Right, okay. So, yeah. 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 Well, okay. Um, I'll put those links in the description below. Just, just to finish, yeah, I'm, um, I'll ask for you for your last word in a second, but it's, um, I think the most important policy of any new independent government, and one that should be done first before they've got a chance to stop you, is to revoke the charter of the Bank of England. Because, mm. And it's when you find out, I've done quite a bit of research into it, but when you find out that the charter of the Bank of England, that primary legislation can't get rid of it and the Crown can't get rid of it. So there has to be some investigation of how we revoke this monopoly license to print money at interest and charge the British people. Because from my view, there's only one policy and it's economic because all of the other policies are judged upon by how much budget they've got to spend. So I think if we change the, change the, um, the current structure of the money supply, so that the people have control over it. Because how can you be a sovereign nation if you don't control your own money? Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's absolutely one of the first things we do, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so what final words have you got for people who are watching this and uh, they've been inspired to take action? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, whatever level you're at, if if you, if you want to make a real change, and this, I hate the word change in politics, because yeah. it's always being used by people who don't want change. Yeah. But a real change and here I am using it but if you're a member of one of the like the, the freedom movement groups then you please get involved you know I'll be in a, in about in, in September I'll be launching and I'll be putting the call out but you know just just help you know use as I said use your platform to get across to your members your network whoever it is that you deal with to get out there and vote, to get out there and volunteer, talk to people, talk to your friends and family who you know don't vote, get the message out there. So whether you're one of the groups, please help unite us all together. If you're just an individual, please get in touch. Look us up now or look us up, you know, when we launch and volunteer because we, we want volunteers to come and just go out there and talk to people. It's going to be all about talking. You know, yeah. talking to people you already know, you know, and um, getting the word out. So that's it, really. It's a very, I, I want it to be as simple as possible. So it'll be just ask people to vote for us and explain why if they don't know. And we'll we'll be getting information that our, our volunteers can use. So the simple information that they can have little, little slideshows to show people and say, I know this is important to you. And look, this is what's really happening. And they go, oh. And it's we can we can make a change, you know. Fantastic, David Fleming. Thanks for coming on Eyes Wide Open. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Lawrence. Thanks for watching another episode of Eyes Wide Open. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can join our live Q&A with David on Sunday, 27th of August at 7 p.m. David will be taking questions about all of the topics discussed in the podcast and any others that come up. You'll need to be a member to access the Q&A. So become a subscriber of my website and join our community. Links are in the description. I'm Loz, and I'll see you next time.